Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and some of the things we can do that benefit people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to talk about a really important topic with respect to world food security, particularly in the African continent. Over the last several years, there's been an increasing invasion of something called the fall army worm. And we'll talk about some of its impacts today and some potential solutions. With me on the line, I have Dr. Simon Warner, Chief Science Officer of Oxitec near Oxford, England. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Warner. Hi. You're the uh, second person we've had on from Oxitec, but the third insect that we've spoken about using these kinds of insect control technologies. And uh, we also spoke with about um, diamondback moth and mosquitoes. So this is a really great bookend to that particular set. First thing we could talk about is the problem and its implications. So let's start with some background. What is this thing called the fall army worm? Uh, I suppose, put simply, it's a uh, it's a moth, and um, the caterpillars or the larvae are quite destructive. They're quite big. Um, and it's polyphagous, which is just a scientific way of saying it eats all sorts of different crops. Um, and it eats a lot of the uh, stable, staple crops. Um, it eats a lot of the staple crops that are used in uh, uh, food and feed production. Well, where has fall armyworm traditionally been a problem? So fall armyworm basically has been, is a problem in the Americas, uh, in, in, the Latin, in Latin America, Central America, actually, and in North America. Pretty widespread pest, uh, travels around the planet. Uh, in Brazil right now, it's, it's actually becoming a real problem because uh, in Brazil, because of the farming practices where they can get two seasons of crops in a year, um, it's started to develop resistance to um, some of the biotech traits that are used and also the chemistries that are used to control, um, control the pest. Okay, so it has been controlled in the past with biotech traits, so is this like a BT sensitivity 
or um, or what other what other types of strategies are used to control the fall armyworm? Yes, let's talk about that one a bit. So actually, uh, it generally in insect control, um, the growers will use whatever they possibly can, which um, with, you know in, 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 at their fingertips. So uh, in Brazil, where biotech crops are growing widely. Um, the, the biotech crops have been pretty successful, and you're right, they're the BT crops. Chemistry is also used, so people will spray uh, to control diamondback moth. So if um, the growers haven't got access or choose not to use biotech crops, they can still try and control fall armyworm uh, using sprays. Quite difficult to control. It's difficult to control for a couple of reasons, actually. Um, its behavior as a caterpillar is sort of interesting if you go into a cornfield you'll find that what the fall army worm does after it hatches on the leaves, it disappears into the whirl or the center of the corn. So it's kind of hidden in the heart of the corn. So if you try and spray it with chemistry, it's quite difficult to get at it. So it tends to sort of go into those parts of the plant and then eat the plant from the inside out when it's quite young. So that's one of the strategies it uses to uh, to uh, actually avoid being controlled. Um, and then... The other strategy that it uses, which has started to uh, uh, it started to develop, of course, is resistance to the biotech traits and the chemistry. Um, and I think I don't know who you spoke to about diamondback moth, but diamondback moth also um, is able to has able has been able to develop resistance to chemistry and traits, as it turns out, quite fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we spoke with uh, Tony Shelton back in uh, yeah. uh, maybe episode 103 on the podcast series, or maybe a 101, somewhere in there. We've done so many of these. Um, but that's I have some of the things I've heard about this, because we're very interested here at the University of Florida. Uh, the university has a substantial interest in controlling fall armyworm from a strictly genetic side, not with biotech traits, but with traditional breeding. And some progress has been made here. And the folks you talk to about it, they say that when this thing shows up, it's almost like a blanket over a field, that there are so many of these worms that uh, it's insurmountable and just the tremendous damage that they do. And it has been especially bad now showing up in Africa. And yeah. so how, how bad of a problem is it uh, both in the Americas and in the African continent? Yeah, so, so, so you're right, Kevin. I mean, if it appears in your field, it is a problem. The, again, the biology of fall armyworm is, is interesting. The females lay a lot of eggs. There are, uh, then there are the, the larvae hatch. There are, I think there's eight instars. Sorry, the six instars, uh, which means basically it molts six times. And the last larvae is really big. Uh, it's probably, uh, an inch and a half long. And, um, uh, I'm just, in, in metric terms, half a centimeter wide. So I guess that's like, a, I don't know, um, two eighths of an inch wide, basically, in, in, in imperial measurements. Um, so it's quite big and quite destructive. Um, and the other trick that it has is uh, when the eggs hatch on a, a particular leaf, um, at a certain point, the larvae themselves will start to actually move by throwing up silks in the air, and they can actually be carried on the wind and distribute themselves very effectively in the in, in the field. Uh, the beast is cannibalistic, so um, one other thing it ends up doing is you end up finding in the center of each corn plant one great big fat caterpillar, uh, which causes a lot of damage because it's so big. 
Um, and if it finds another caterpillar in the same world of the corn plants, there's a good chance it'll eat that other caterpillar if it's smaller. Um, so their biology is actually, uh, from a biological perspective, really quite interesting, but it also goes some way to describing why it's so destructive and how if you get it in your field and you don't control it, you're in a lot of trouble quite fast. Yeah, I heard it uh, can travel something like 100 kilometers. Is that true? I mean, just on the wind or fly or how does it, is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. So it's wind carried um, and that's seasonal. So we know in North America where they have really hard winters that the fall armyworm in the corn growing areas are actually is killed off because it's so cold. But every year it comes back and it comes back through those winds. In a, in a growing season, though, I think what tends to happen is, in a, in a particular growing season, the you know the adult moths will mate, they'll lay eggs, the offspring will uh, will go through their life cycle, and as long as there's um, food and other mates around, they tend not to go too far. So again, if you've got if you're a grower and you've got it in your farm on one field, it won't take long before it hops from field to field quite quickly the numbers will increase quite rapidly because those females you know essentially lay a lot of eggs and those eggs hatch and create a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, larvae well the uh, the the worm itself is you know certainly in the in the united states or in the americas is a nuisance and has some impacts on on farm but in places like africa uh, this is looking like a severe food security challenge. And from uh, what I've heard just through the grapevine, this is a new introduction to Africa, to the African continent. And there's words being thrown around like famine, which um, haven't been heard, at least in a widespread case in a long time, um, associated now with the fall armyworm. And so what is the situation on the ground there and which countries and maybe which crops are particularly likely to be affected? So, so yeah, like you, I've seen the newspaper articles uh, where um, this, well, this year, where fall armyworm has now been actually found in a number of different countries in Africa. Um, and your question is to, well, what crops are most likely to be affected? I've talked about corn quite a lot, but actually, uh, it, it will eat. I think it's over eighty different plant species. It's quite will happily live in grasses, um, the surrounding. Um, flora and fauna around the fields uh, as well as the crops themselves. So it'll quite happily eat sorghum, it'll quite happily eat soy, it'll quite happily uh, eat it, most of the crops that are grown as the staple crops in, in Africa. Um, and probably uh, like you, you've just seen some of the pictures of severe crop damage from fall armyworm. Um, so if you don't protect uh, against fall armyworm when it comes into your field, but, yeah, it's a problem. I, you know, I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want to send send alarm bells and say it's going to cause famine. Uh, it is a problem. It will have to be dealt with. Uh, in Africa, different countries do have different tools that they can use. So actually, uh, there is some biotech uh, corn grown in South Africa, for example. That's registered to be grown there. And if you are a grower and you can and you're growing corn, that's that's great. But actually, all the chemistry. Um, that is used, you know, basically all the crop protect, conventional crop protection products uh, will still work uh, in Africa as well. And I guess, you know, then it's a matter of making sure 
that um, the, gr the growers in Africa are informed sensibly about what sort of chemistries they should apply and what combinations they should, should apply those chemistries with to actually try and prevent um, resistance developing in Africa to the uh, crop protection regimes that they use. Yeah, I was recently at a meeting in Uganda, and a scientist from South Africa was speaking about it. And I guess many of the growers have used the wrong kind of BT trait, that they've been using the rootworm-based BT traits, or rootworm-targeted BT trait, and not the lepidopteran one, and have still had some protection, but not very, not very much. So there's a lot of education that seems to be lacking in this situation as well. Yeah. Absolutely right. So you, you're right. If you, um, you and, and maybe your audience know quite a lot about this, but there are different BTs and they got different spectra on the different pests. And the um, the corn rootworm BTs really work on the coleopteran, basically the beetle type classes of uh, insects, whereas the moths, the lepidopterans, they have, they have different classes. Um, in the biotech pipeline, there are some great new tools. So there's a um, new trait which was developed by Syngenta a, a while ago. It's called VIP, the VIP trait or Victor, I think they sell it as. And uh, um, that actually has very good control of fall armyworm. Um, however, that's still quite new. And I don't think the market uh, penetration of that particular trait is is really big just yet, so it's growing because it's so new to the market. And I don't know in terms of access for the different countries in Africa, um, what combinations of BTs they do and they don't have. I do know in South Africa, they've got the right, the right BTs which should work uh, on LEPs. Problem would be, and actually the good news is I think for Africa, I don't think the full army workers in Africa is already resistant to the uh, um, the BTs that work on those moths. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Brazil, the situation looks like it's getting a little bit more um, a little bit more problematic there. Let's put it that way. Yeah, well, it's easy to see how resistance could develop so quickly with the massive numbers of these things, and how there's uh, it would seem almost like you would anticipate that you have to have i would say not even two strategies but three or four different strategies of insect control um so it just is such an overwhelming number but where, where are the major problems right now on the african continent and where are they anticipated to spread cool but it looks like yeah approximately 50 percent of the countries in africa uh in the central and southern region as well as the um, eastern region near the coast. So, you know, countries like, I'll give you a few examples, South Africa, Tanzania, Malawi, Angola, um, Nigeria, Togo, Ghana, all have had cases of fall armyworm. Um, but the information I have, which is from CIMIT, was is probably a little out of date. Now, that sounds about where, um, as I understood it, so that uh, sounds pretty good. It really was on the tip of everyone's tongue at this meeting I was at in Uganda earlier this year, and um, certainly sounds like a formidable problem on the horizon. So we're speaking with uh, Dr. Simon Warner, who's the C chief scientific officer at Oxitec, and we're discussing the fall army worm, its problems, its effects, and when we come back after the break, we'll talk about its solutions. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast.
Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. My name is Nick Syke, and I wanted to take just a quick moment to tell you about No Ideas Media. That's no with a K and a W. It's a media company I've recently started, and its purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're listening to a biotechnology podcast right now, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic could maybe be useful, especially when we're talking biotechnology in food, the dreaded GMO. This GMO thing is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to cover, so I went all over the place, like Hawaii to Uganda, and interviewed a ton of people, including a pretty awesome guy you may have heard of named Kevin Fulton. So I'm, I'm making videos with these interviews, and I'd love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. Every week, you'll find a new video featuring some exciting expert or topic to do with genetically engineered food. And the videos are really perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science. So I encourage you to share them, especially with people in your lives who you know need to look at this scary topic of GMOs a little more pragmatically. Also, if you want to get in on a surprisingly constructive conversation about this topic and maybe even contribute to changing a few minds, follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on our threads. It also really helps if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel just in terms of, you know, numbers and views and stuff like that. Plus, that way you'll always know when there's something new to watch and share. And let's be honest, being in the know is the best, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast after all, which, speaking of, I will probably let you get back to right now. Thanks a lot. And welcome back to the Talking Biotech podcast. Today we're talking with Dr. Simon Warner, who is the Chief Scientific Officer of Oxitech. And Oxitech, as you listeners are aware, is the company in England which has been developing a number of strategies to be able to control either mosquitoes, uh, diamondback moth, or in this case, fall army worm. And in the first part of the podcast, we discussed what a problem this is, its new emergence as a formidable problem on the African continent, and now some of the solutions. So basically, we talked about this being a problem that was bad and getting worse. And so how has Oxitech stepped into this to solve the problem? Hmm. Um, So... You've spoken to uh, Oxitech people before, you've spoken to Tony Shelton, and you know we've developed technology where we actually use insects themselves to actually control the insect pest. Um, So our insects have got a couple of genes in them, uh, and one of those genes means that when um, our males that are released mate with females, that the offspring of those matings don't make it through to being like functional adult moths. Um, and that's the same as the diamondback moth, uh, very much the same as the diamondback moth information that Tony Shelton would have, would have shared with you. So we made um, a DNA construct that should work in uh, fall armyworm, strained by injecting fall armyworm eggs with, the, uh, with a particular construct, and we tested that uh, basically in the lab, and we now have a fall armyworm that, at least in the lab, works in a way that tells us uh, as we move forward through the development process that we stand a good chance of being able to have an effect in the field. 
And this is a really curious technology. Like, I get it, and I think it's fantastic. But people you talk to, especially about mosquitoes where they have planned, you know, live releases or uh, diamondback moth where they've done field trials, people become very concerned because they don't understand exactly how it works. But let me maybe jump in and try to give a little clarity that in the laboratory, you're able to um, advance these these animals throughout their caterpillar stage to adults by turning off a gene which limits their development. So the, when the gene is turned on, they can't develop. But in the laboratory, you can turn that gene off by applying an antibiotic or, or a compound. I think it's tetracycline. That you can use tetracycline to turn that gene off in the larval stage, and then they can proceed normally. But in the wild, when those adults go out and mate, the offspring are produced in the absence of tetracycline, and so they can't develop. Did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, more or less in a nutshell, that's correct. Um, slight difference that we have with our uh, agricultural products compared with the mosquito product that we have. We don't even actually have to rear uh, our adults um, in a lab or a factory um, on that antibiotic. Um, so the, the the technology we're using is a little bit more advanced um, at the lab scale right now than uh, where we were with the mosquito now that's being deployed. So there's a, there's a slight difference. And um, the other difference, which is a, a good one to sort of talk about, is we release only males. Um, and actually the technology that we have allows us to release males without having to do any physical sorting because essentially what it does is during development, unless you have that antidote, you kill off the females. Um, and we've shown with our other agricultural pests in lab studies, field caged studies and uh, outdoor studies that um, if you release the males and they mate with the females and you kill off all the females in the uh, next population, in the population, you'll get a population suppression and it will crash the population to zero um, within a reasonable period of time uh, and a reasonable number of releases of um, the particular insect that you're looking at. Yes. With ball armyworm, we actually know a little bit more because we've done quite a bit of uh, what we call field ecology. So um, probably the number of releases that we need to do through a growing season would be somewhere between four and eight releases of the insect. And if we did four and eight releases, between four and eight releases during the growing season, we should be able to uh, get really good suppression. Yeah, that's great. I, as I understand, it's a pretty quick process and that the populations, when you say they crash, they go almost to zero rather quickly. I mean, is that really the case? Yeah, that, that is the case. Definitely in the, uh, definitely in the environments that we've tested them so far, that's true. Um, so, it, and actually the sort of, I suppose the pre-story behind all of Oxitec is this technology was really kind of validated back even in the 1950s where irradiating uh, insects and releasing irradiated males to do the job uh, actually had a, re you know, a good number of successes. So, you know, using insects to control insects um, isn't new the way Oxitec does it is new and it is a little bit different so we don't have to use a radiation and uh, and actually because we don't have to use a radiation uh, our males are actually a bit fitter 
because when you really zap, um, when you zap those males in most insects, there is a bit of a fitness cost. Sure. Um, so what we're doing is basically building that technology into the insect so you don't have to have um, operators managing radiation uh, and um, uh, you know other technologies. We want to make the technology for uh, the people who are applying it or using it and the growers that have it as simple as possible so it's all inbuilt. Yeah, it sounds like it's much more precise. I mean, the uh, sterile mosquito techniques or sterile insect techniques with radiation were very effective, but um, still were just very random. And this is an extremely precise way to achieve essentially the same end, uh, only more effective. Yeah, that, that word precise as well, I think that's a really good word to use because um, one of the other areas that we are very aware of is um, every grower wants to make sure he takes care of his pests, but also growers and people in the environment are also very aware that there are beneficial insects. So, you know, not all insects are bad. There are natural predators out there. There's pollinators out there. And we know um, that technologies that actually make sure that you really um, essentially control the pest and you leave everything else uh, alone are um, will actually have a positive view both for consumers, the public, and probably you'll have an easier ride through the regulatory system. And um, chemistry and crop protection products are really good and they're safe and they're regulated, but we also know that some of the older chemistries now are struggling to get registrations or re-registrations in different countries, which means the growers you know, I'm now looking to find um, new tools to replace those ones that have been deregistered. So I think that's something that we are very keen to uh, promote and, and, and move forward with. And of course, as you said earlier, using different modes of action is, re is really key. So we also know, and we also advocate this one, that you, you're probably pretty sensible to use, if you're a grower, you're pretty sensible if you can, right, use the traded corn, uh, use chemistry, and actually then use Oxitec as well to um, give those dramatic effects um, that you'll get when you use Oxitec. And one other slight twist which I'll get onto about the um, technology that we have, um, because we are releasing males, and those males are actually uh, made in genetic backgrounds that don't carry any natural, you know, any resistance allele. So we're purposely picking um, the background genetics to be susceptible to all the chemistries and susceptible to the um, biotech traits. We can actually, well, by, by releasing the males, uh, we're actually introgressing or pushing in susceptible alleles into populations of fall armyworms that may carry resistance to the biotech traits or chemistry and we can reverse the resistance and we've done this um, so we've shown this work uh, um, by mathematical modeling and also um, Tony Shelton and Optitech have worked together to actually show this empirically in the lab that we can reverse um, resistance so if fall armyworm is resistant to uh, pesticides either the chemistry or the biotech traits using our technology you should be able to reverse that um, adding value, increasing the trait life, uh, allowing growers to use those biotech traits longer and the chemistries that they use. 
Oh, very good. I didn't think about that before, but you're essentially able to dilute out any kind of uh, potential resistance to traditional uh, approaches and then uh, provide the overlay of the Oxitec approach on top. So that, that's, that's really great, um, it's, and it's a good part of the strategy. What are some of the risks involved, or are there risks that we can identify? In terms of risks, I mean, so we we go through... Before we can really go into the field, um, we go, we de-risk as much as we can on the technology before we go to the field. We also de-risk before we go to the field in terms of environmental safety and other safety um, by actually applying to the uh, regulators to get field permits. And of course, the regulators will all have different questions, but essentially, uh, even before you go to the field, you'll have to provide data and dossiers to answer the basic questions which regulators always ask is, you know, first of all, does it work? In other words, any claims that you're making, um, can you substantiate those claims to, that your technology works? And then, of course, there's a safety question. And safety for us uh, generally is around environmental safety. So environmental safety um, <clears throat> includes, well, what happens to the environment uh, when you release your insects, and we know they disappear from the environment because of this self-limiting gene that we've put in there, which means ultimately they cannot survive in the uh, in the environment at all. The genes that we, the other question they ask is, well, okay, you put two genes in there, what do they encode for, and um, you know, how much expression or how much of a particular protein are you making, and is that protein allergenic or toxic in any way? So we have to go through a number of tests and satisfy um, basically satisfy those as well. Well, the other thought to me is uh, ecological, that are there places in the Americas where fall armyworm is a food source for something like a, some kind of bat or bird? You know, are, and are there kind of uh, trophic uh, levels of potential disruption that you have to think about, or is it pretty much just an invasive insect everywhere? Yeah, so actually, uh, great. Not all insects are bad, and you know we call them a pest, but actually it just means an insect's in the wrong place. <laughs> and um, sure, so the questions about um, what, what 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 will eat those moths, and what would happen if a bat ate those moths? What happened? Another insect ate the larvae. Uh, what we actually do is feeding studies, and so far every feeding study. Um, or every sort of uh, lab-based study that we have to do to sort of um, try and work out what would happen if a mammal or uh, a, another insect um, ate that. We've actually ate the insect or, or even had a higher dose of the protein than they would ever get uh, actually in a natural sort of environment, environmental situation. The answers have always come back, well, there's no effect. In other words, it's no different if uh, somebody ate a octotech fall armyworm um, or an, another creature ate an octotech fall armyworm as compared to a normal fall armyworm. So, um, so that actually pretty much shows that, um, that, in, that it is safe, there is no impact, and we know that, we, know, we purposely didn't, we purposely picked those proteins that are non-allergenic, um, non-toxic, um, and then we've had to back that up by doing lab studies and then submit those studies to regulators who independently review those. And if they don't like what they see, they tell you <laughs> and you don't <laughs> approval. And if they do, you do. That's the kind of way it goes. 
Yeah, yeah. We we talk about the process here and there, and you know. So once you get through this entire process, which is pretty rigorous, um, it, what is the projected timeline, or is there a projected timeline when this might be implemented? So that's a, so that, that's another good question. So where we are now, which I sort of alluded to, and um, what we're doing now is finishing the lab data and then collecting the data that we need to put together to go into the field. Uh, we would like to go and do field trials in Brazil next year. Then you start collecting data uh, in the field in terms of the efficacy and more safety data. Uh, that will probably take us at least three years. And then there's a, there's a review period once you've submitted those, uh, those data to uh, the regulators in Brazil. There is a couple of years for them to review, uh, questions and answers come back. Uh, and they will not grant kind of a final approval until they're satisfied with that. Uh, I'd, I'd love to be able to say we've got this solution in our pocket right now. We can, we can move forward with it. But because of the rigorous process that we're going through, it will be, uh, you know, I, I'm predicting at least five years off. That's, uh, that's really uh, scary to me. And the fact that we can de- <laughs> develop tools and solve problems for people and uh, have to go through, I mean, of course, regulation and safety are really important, but it seems like something that we could probably knock out in a few months if we really wanted to really wanted to get on it, you know. Is there any discussion or any sense of uh, how the climate feels in terms of preparedness for these technologies? Are, are there places that you think would welcome this kind of approach? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, first of all, first of all, Kevin, if we could knock this out faster, we would love to. But you know, we'll, we'll follow the process, and uh, and that's just the way it is. And it's just, that process is designed to uh, make sure that um, yeah, the environment, people are protected. So you know, good. Um, but the question about um, you know, have we done any work that would actually help? Uh, people understand uh, what we, you know, how it works. The answer is, of course, yes. And you spoke to Tony, and we worked with Tony just this year. We completed um, a field trial with Diamondback Moth in New York State. We went. Um, the regulators we worked with there were you, the USDA APHIS, um, who actually uh, gave us a field trial permit, but also um, came up with a finding of no significant impact and a positive environmental uh, assessment um, document. So that was very positive. Uh, before we even did the trials, there was quite a lot of community engagement. Uh, we talked to people in and around the area. We went on radio shows, uh, media. Um, so there's quite a lot of discussion so people knew what it was that we were doing and why we were doing it. And, uh, you know, as usual, when you talk to people, it is a mixed bag. Uh, a lot of growers support us. A lot of consumers will support us. Uh, however, there's always the, the uh, some people who don't support us. And those people, uh, you know, more than entitled to hold their views. Uh, we engage with everybody. We discuss with everybody. Um, and we take everybody's views into account. The person or the, or the body whose views are most important, of course, are the regulators. But we also know, because we're a company, if we were to ever make a product that didn't sit well with growers or could, didn't sit well with end consumers, that, that wouldn't work. So that really puts quite a big burden on our shoulders to make sure before we ever go to a field or before we ever release a full commercial product that we know 
that we will have good market acceptance and we'll have good acceptance ultimately with um, or sufficient acceptance with the ultimate consumer. And in, and in Europe, you probably know there's generally different opinions compared with the US. It's, uh, it's a different environment. But also we know that growers that grow corn, will those products will end up being exported in uh, find their way um, through the sort of global channels into food and feed or in different places on the pl- on the planet. And the big ag companies know this and uh, you know part of their approval process, which is why sometimes it takes so long, is making sure that not only the country that there'll be growing crops in, but all the countries that the growers will be exporting those crops to um, can accept what it is that they've, they've grown. No, that's really great, and it's good that you're here on this podcast. We have a weekly listenership right now that's probably between five and 6,000 downloads, and these are folks who are science enthusiasts who like to think about ways that we can use technology to solve important problems. So you've got a base here that anytime there's any kind of updates or anything else happening in this space, please reach out because you've got people here who are poised to, to go out and tell your story and share their story with their families, with their friends, and make what, you know, on the outside, you're talking about insects, you're talking about killing insects, you're talking about, you know, uh, novel technologies. And that triad never sits well with people. And so much of the success and the social license to use this technology will come from just really great communication. And it's, it's, it's a, so glad that you're able to join us here today. I think there's a great discussion, actually, um, and, I, and, I, and I welcome the opportunity, and it was good to be able to uh, really sort of um, share with you some of the benefits that, you know, when and, when and if, or if and when we get to market this, that that will bring to the growers, and obviously reversing resistance is something that you, you learned about today, so I'm pleased I was able to share that with you. And if people are excited about learning more about this particular project, where would they find more information? So, uh, yeah, look at our, our website, which is www.oxitech.com, and Twitter is uh, just Twitter at Oxitech. Okay, very good. Well, Dr. Simon Warner, the Chief Science Officer at Oxitech, thank you so much for joining us today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. This is another exciting project from your company. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that was another example of a solution that is in the works that is frustratingly still too far away. And especially when we start to hear people talk about the imminent threat of fall armyworm in the African continent, um, let alone its current infestations in South America and North America, um, this solution could be something that is a real game changer. And uh, study it, talk about it, learn more about it, and share the story of how technology can help people. And with lowering the amounts of insect uh, controls we're using, help the planet. This is Kevin Fulta talking from the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Write a review on iTunes. We got a lot of good reviews on iTunes. Uh, Tell a friend. Talk to other people about the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech 
at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.